0: Hello there, and welcome to KDL's Stump the Librarian podcast, where your friendly neighborhood librarians put their research skills to the test to answer questions from you, the listener, or a zookeeper, your cheesemonger, or your pet cat. (laughs) I'm Jill, and I'm here with Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Jill. (laughs) We love answering your questions, so please send them to us at kdl.org forward slash stump or email us at stumpthelibrarian at kdl.org. We'd love to hear from you. We would love it if you followed the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. When you follow and like our podcast, more people can find us. So this top of the pod question comes from a listener, Gabe, from our Amy Van Andel branch. Gabe's question is, if your soap drops on the floor, is the soap dirty or is the floor clean? <laughs> what do you think, Liz? I'm going with... Soap
1: is dirty. That's what I would go with because it, if you just drop it, it's just going to be like a soapy kind of spot on the floor unless you like get down and scrub it. So I'm
0: going with soap, dirty. Um, So that's interesting that you, I I, I was going to ask you ahead of time, but I, I just wanted to hear you're in the moment. <laughs> what is soap? Process. Yes. um, Because you are thinking of a drop of soap, like liquid soap from like a hand pump or something.
1: Well, like a bar of soap too. Like, I just think there's always dog hair on my floor.
0: Well, that's true. That's true. So if a drop of soap falls, yes, the soap is dirty. But to me, if the bar of soap falls, the bar isn't dirty. You could like, I don't know. What
1: if it has dog hair on (laughs) it?
0: That's true. That's true. That's just what I think. Okay. Well, the floor is definitely not clean. (laughs) No. No matter what. Because you're not down there like scrubbing. Right. Right. You just have a soap spot on the floor and then you track it everywhere and then the floor is really dirty. (sighs) Sounds like a pain. <laughs> Gabe, you might have stumped us with that one. That's a good one. That is
1: a good one.
0: Wow. Okay. So we have a, a question, uh, a researched question from our listeners as well. And my question today is from Vivian from Wyoming. And Vivian asks, why is cheese different colors? This is a good question. That I a good like question. it. Do you like cheese? I, oh, I love cheese. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheese is a delicious food. Do you like cheese? I,
1: I enjoy, cheese doesn't always like me, but okay. I enjoy cheese for sure.
0: Okay. Okay. So cheese is a food, in case you haven't, <laughs> didn't know that. And it's made from milk. And generally we think of cheese made from cow's milk, but cheese can be made from any milk, goat's milk, reindeer, llamas, even buffalo. Oh, Yeah, I know. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Cheese goes through a lengthy process to get from milk to the cheese that we love to eat. Milk is usually pasteurized to kill any bacteria that might make us sick. And then after that, enzymes are added to the milk to help it thicken into clumps. Different combinations of enzymes and milk make different kinds of cheese. I'm not going to talk anymore about different kinds of cheese, just (laughs) colors. (laughs) So as it thickens... The cheese milk <laughs> separates into two different parts: curds and whey. Aww. I know about curds and whey from Little Miss Little Muffet. Little Miss Muffet <laughs>
1: likes to eat them both. She does.
0: <laughs> so the curds are the solid clumps, and the whey is the liquid. Cheese makers gently cook the curds and add salts cheesemakers are also called cheesemongers, which is why I mentioned them at the it's top kind of the kind of a funny word. It's a really funny <laughs> word, cheesemongers. So they cook the curds and they add some salt. At this point in the process, some types of cheeses are ready to eat. So these cheeses are called unripened or fresh cheese. Mozzarella is a fresh cheese, cottage cheese, cream cheese. Those are fresh cheeses or unripened cheeses. So other cheeses have a further process to go. They are pressed to get more way out. Basically, you're pushing out all of the liquid. And then they are left to ripen or age. And that depends on what kind of cheese it is. For some of them, it's just a couple weeks. And then for some of them, it can take months all the way up to a year to age. Yeah,
1: And it's still okay to eat? It's still okay to eat.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yep. Uh, Cheddar cheese is a really good example of an aged cheese. Cheddar cheese takes a year to age. So cheese making is very old. There's like several different origin stories of cheese making, but it's kind of likely that it was just discovered by accident. Because if you've ever left a glass of milk for a really long time, you might see it gets chunky. Don't do that. That's gross. <laughs> but that's probably how it was accidentally discovered when transporting milk. Um, it, it was often early, early cheese making was often very salty because they would use salt to preserve cheese for long periods of time. In colder climates, when cheese making started to happen like in Europe and other um, kind of colder places, uh, they didn't have to make it as salty because those are colder places and the cheese could last longer without that salt to preserve it. Making milk into cheese was a good way for people to preserve their milk uh, because otherwise it would spoil too fast, but it's a good thing A really good source of uh, protein and calories, and you don't want to lose that milk from your buffalo or llama, (laughs) cow mostly, or goat. (laughs) Um, Cheese factories and mass production of cheese. That started in Switzerland in 1815. That's where the first cheese factory was. It's a trivia for you. Today, the United States is the top producer of cheese, and Wisconsin in particular is... The cheese state, yes, exactly, cheese heads. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to color. Milk is white, and so is cheese. So why is there yellow cheese? We need another cheese history lesson. We're (laughs) going to go back to the 1500s. In the 1500s, cows just ate grass. Today they do also eat grass, but they eat other things too. We have like plans for our stock to eat our cows and chickens. Like we have food that we feed them. But back then it was just grass. Whatever was growing is what they ate. In the spring and the summer, the grass that the cows ate turned their milk a color that was closer to yellow than white. Those grasses in the spring and summer have more beta carotene in them, which is the same thing that's in carrots. And so that would turn their milk a little bit yellow and then the cheese makers would use this rich yellow milk and the cheese would be closer to yellow. As often happens, people saw this yellow cheese as more desirable and farmers were like, "Hmm, we could make more money and make cheaper cheese if we just add some color. Mm -hmm. So they dyed it. Even way back in the 1500s, they started adding yellow color to their cheese and selling cheaper cheese with yellow color in it. And that is why cheese is yellow. Wow. Tradition.
1: Fascinating.
0: I know. Today, most cheddar cheese is colored with a netto, which is uh, plant-based. It comes from the seeds of a tropical plant, and it's really red in color, but when you mix it into something, it makes it yellow or orange. And so that is what almost all cheddar cheese is colored with unless you get what is often called Vermont cheddar even though it doesn't necessarily come for Vermont but it's called Vermont cheddar that will be white because hmm. they leave out the color that's really the only difference but now that is the more expensive cheese <laughs> yeah, isn't right. that interesting mm-hmm. how things change yeah. Wow, I know lots of stuff there. What's your favorite cheese recipe list or your favorite cheese usage? maybe not necessarily recipe? That's a
1: great question. Um I'm a big fan of goat cheese mm. so like I like that too a big like baked goat cheese if you put it in the oven and then it it kind of tastes like the like the inside of um of a manicotti you know but you like dip crackers or vegetables in it that's probably my favorite i would take goat cheese any day
0: delicious and goat cheese i think is typically uh uh, on i mean you probably can use goat milks to do anything but what we call goat cheese is like a un un, unripe Mm -hmm. cheese it is a soft cheese yeah do you have a a cheese go-to um i hadn't really uh I, I had a different answer, but I had forgotten about my very favorite pizza of all time, which is actually called Aloha Goat because it has goat oh. cheese on it and it has pineapple, hence Aloha, Aloha Goat. Oh, that sounds delicious. It's really delicious and I, it's, it's kind of a, a, sweet probably. It is, yeah, with yeah. that goat cheese and that's probably my very favorite, but really any cheese that you put on pizza is mm. top notch mm-hmm. for me. Put it on pizza. It's my favorite. We should have some cheese. Why? Why don't we have a big (laughs) cheese platter in front of us right now? That would be amazing. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. Yeah.
1: Are you ready for a fact of the day that is non-cheese related? Yeah. Happy
0: with the fact of the day.
1: Okay, so you know I like big nonfiction books. I always go to the shelf in our junior nonfiction and just look for big books because that's interesting to me. So the big book I picked for my fact of the day is called From Shore to Ocean Floor, The Human Journey to the Deep. And it's found in the Science and Earth section of the junior nonfiction. So it has... Some facts about ocean lore, about stories people told, about things that live in the ocean. But I do have actual facts in this book, too. And I found an interesting fact that the Atlantic Ocean is the stormiest ocean on Earth. The system of ocean currents in the Atlantic helps to move water around the planet and influences the weather worldwide the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. It has a maximum depth of 27,493 feet. I thought that was a really interesting fact of the day. So what happens in the Atlantic Ocean affects the entire Earth. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I Uh, thought it was pretty cool. Oceans are fascinating. They are. You know, it's, yeah. I learn something every time I read a book about the ocean.
0: Me too. I love it when people send us ocean questions in because yeah. a lot of times the answer is well scientists don't scientists know don't really <laughs> Here's know the best guess. yeah <laughs> but there are some interesting you know ocean things we do know yeah like volcanoes in, in the, the ocean. ocean I know <gasps> incredible very interesting okay. it's
1: a really great book um, if you uh, enjoy ocean facts um, from shore to ocean floor check that one out check it out. Do you have another question for us? I from a sure listener, do oh. it's another animal question. Yay. Hooray. The animals are fascinating. They really are. Mm-hmm. I love researching animal questions. This question comes from Rachel, who is 10 years old and she's from Kentwood. And Rachel asked, Why do flamingos only eat upside down? Flamingos, think about the flamingo for a moment. <laughs> have you seen a flamingo eat before?
0: I, can't, I don't Probably think so. Probably No. I
1: feel like whenever I've seen them, you know, in a zoo or whatever, they're sleeping or they're making loud honky noises. Yeah, they are kind of loud, <laughs> yeah. So a little info before we dive in. There are only six species of flamingo. Oh. Sometimes when we talk about animals, there's thousands of species of different insects. Six species. They can be found in Africa, Southern Europe, Southwest Asia, South America, the Caribbean, and Florida, mm. here in the United States. I have a question for you. Do you know what a group of flamingos is called? Oh. When you have a you know, you know, like yeah, animal I know groups you have different names. Is Flami- it just a flock? No, well, sometimes, but the actual, you know, proper word for yeah. a group of flamingos is called a flamboyance. Oh, flamboyance. That's amazing. I love that fact. That is it seems appropriate for it a big does. group. Yeah. So back to the question. Flamingos are filter feeders. When I read that, I thought of the type of whale that has bristles. I, I feel like I've seen pictures that they filter their food in and out. Oh and yeah. flamingos are kind of kind of like that, a little bit different. The shape of their beak functions as a filter, but when it's time to eat, the flamingo's head goes underwater with its beak pointed towards its feet. So it's, it's not really upside down. Its head is not upside down. It's down you know, down towards the bottom of whatever water they're feeding in. But their beak kind of turns backwards towards their feet, okay. if you can picture that in yeah. your mind. Okay. So he goes underwater, and then they kind of move their head back and forth and back and forth, um, and they use their tongue as a pump to push the water in and out. And there are comb-like plates that filter out the food from the water and the dirt and whatever else is on the bottom of the water. And that structure has a name. It's called lamellae. So their tongues are rough on the surface to help with pushing that water. It kind of made me think of like a cat's tongue. Like it has kind of a texture to it. Yeah. Um, Another type of filter feeder is an an oyster and they have oh. the power to clean the water around them. So they're taking the water in and pushing it back out again and getting mm-hmm. whatever nutrients they need from the water. Filter feeders. So they don't they're not eating like you would picture another bird eating, you know, pulling worms out of the ground or whatever. Right. They're in the water all the time. So what are they eating? They eat brine shrimp, which are tiny little animals that live in really salty water, and that gives them their pink color. So how bright the flamingo's color is depends on how much beta carotene, which we talked Uh, about, (laughs) is in their food. Mm -hmm. And they also eat blue-green algae, they eat insects, and they eat seeds, whatever they can find. Um, They're omnivorous, so they eat lots of different things. So a couple of other interesting facts I found when I was researching how they eat. And I do have a video linked, um, I will link it, so that you can see an underwater camera of flamingos eating. I think it's from the Smithsonian Zoo. Yeah. Um, It's kind of fascinating to watch. Um, But you've seen flamingos standing on one leg. Right, Like a lot of animals and other things that we research here, scientists aren't absolutely sure why <laughs> flamingos stand on one leg. Um, it could be to conserve heat, although flamingos that live in warm climates do it too. It, it's not dependent on um, the temperature, mm-hmm. but it could be to conserve energy because using the muscles in just one leg, they use less energy than they would be standing on two legs. But again, there isn't really a right answer. I didn't find a, a, a concise answer yeah, about that one. This is the only answer, yeah. <laughs> but another really cool thing about flamingos is it's not their knees that bend backwards. When they walk, they have kind of a unique structure in their legs, so it looks like their knees bend backwards. Instead of humans, their yeah. knees go forward. But it's not. That's not the structure. It's actually their ankle joint that oh. bends when they walk, and their knees are up higher, kind of under where their feathers are. So you don't really even see their knees. You're seeing their ankle joint moving oh. back and forth when they walk. Which they is, have
0: weird legs. They,
1: they do. They're <laughs> covered. Their legs are – it's, it's kind of like they're standing on tiptoe all the time because that's their ankle that's oh, moving yeah. back and forth. Wow. Um, their legs are also covered in a really tough skin that allows them to stand in super salty water so it might burn another animal's skin on their legs that that's not used to it. They can live in super super salty water areas. They're not um it doesn't affect them because of this covering on their legs, which mm-hmm. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. And also they do fly. Flamingos fly. The undersides of their wings are black, and oh. you only see that when they fly. So if you ever see a video or pictures of a few of the books that I referenced have pictures of flamingos flying and they're black underneath, which is, you wouldn't know that when you just see them standing there. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, Um, Flamingo parents are very interesting too. They build, so they live um, usually in shallow water areas. Mm -hmm. They build a little (laughs) volcano, a mud volcano is what it was referred to in one book I read, um, when they're incubating an egg. So the egg is safe from flooding. It's up out of the water. Uh, both parents take care of the egg. Um, baby flamingos, when they're born, are white and fuzzy, and their legs are pink. Oh, and their beak is flat. And as they grow, they grow that skin on their legs, and their their feathers change color, and their beak curves down. It's really fascinating. But they, <laughs> the noise—if you've ever heard a flamingo kind of make out that honking yeah, noise it's before, weird. yeah, um, that. When parents, flamingo parents, hear their baby flamingo making like a honking noise, they produce what's called crop milk. So they're not feeding it like you would picture a bird bringing an insect to an, a nest. Like yeah. they are making the food that they feed their babies like in their digestive tract. Oh, And kind of like regurgitating it into their mouth.
0: Weird, but
1: but they make it like it's right in their physiology. I wow. thought that was really interesting. That is but really interesting. What was even more interesting is that even other adults that are around a baby, even if it's not their baby, can produce that crop milk in their digestive tract. It isn't just oh, wow the flamingo babies' parents. Like any any adult. flamingo, yeah. Weird. So can you imagine? <laughs> just.
0: Regurgitate Just, up for the baby. Right,
1: any baby will do. Um, as numbers <laughs> wow. go, flamingos aren't endangered, but they have a population decline as a result of habitat loss, yep. which we've talked about. Yep. They can live up to 50 years in captivity. What is believed to be the oldest flamingo in captivity lived to the age of 83 in an Australian zoo. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in zoos... Um, to encourage a breeding behavior, so we have more flamingos, zoos sometimes use mirrors in the flamingo habitat so that the flamingos think there are more of them,
0: oh. and that
1: you know makes them more likely to p- reproduce when they think they have a bigger flock than they actually do, which I wow. thought was really
0: interesting. That is too. interesting.
1: Um, those are your fast flamingo facts of the day. Wow, I hope you learned great. something. I learned a lot. Very unique animals. Um
0: I appreciate
1: them even more
0: now. <laughs> yeah, that was fascinating flamingo facts. I, I really enjoyed that.
1: <laughs> I'm so glad. I did too. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I have a book I've been that I just finished actually. Nice. Yeah. I uh I really loved it and I'm excited to tell you about it. So at KDL we have this cool collection of books. It's called the Core Collection. And you know this, Liz. This is for our listeners. We have it for all ages. So a core collection. Um, we have one for picture books, one for youth books, one for teen, one for adult. They're books that are at the heart of our library, books that both readers and librarians love. At our branch, at the Wyoming branch, all the librarians are challenging each other to read through the youth core collection. Okay, yeah, it's a lot of books. I know. One Hot. of the librarians is already done. Oh. She's just like a. Speed There's always reader. one. Is I, it you, Jill? No, it's not me. I'm still working. <laughs> I just started a new one today. Um, No, it's actually somebody who was on the team for the core collection. So I think she had already read a lot of Um, them. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have been reading these like crazy. So if you want to know about the core collection, come on into Wyoming because we've all been reading them. They're great books. (laughs) They really are. So the book I want to talk to you about today is in the core collection, which means that it's going to be at your local branch. Any branch you go into, it's going to be there on the shelf. But I listened to it as an audio book, which I really enjoy. I love it. A super fun way to do your reading. I love audiobooks. And it's called Amari and the Night Brothers by B.B. That's a good one. That's
1: a good one, Jill.
0: Such a good (laughs) one. Um, It's a fantasy. Um, It's about Amari, who's a 13-year-old girl, and she is dealing with the disappearance of her wonderful older brother, who she loves and who everybody loves. His name is Quinton. The police don't know what happened to him and they just keep suggesting to Amari and, and their mom that maybe Quentin was kind of getting into bad things, got into some trouble, was doing things he shouldn't have, and either something bad happened to him or he ran away because he was embarrassed. And Amari can, cannot believe that. She just knows that's absolutely not true about Quentin. He was just a wonderful person and that's not what he was doing. So one night, Amari discovers a ticking suitcase in the back of Quentin's closet that is for her eyes only. This suitcase opens Amari's eyes to a supernatural world that exists right in the world that she's living in. What? I know. It's kind of
1: like a mystery too. It, huh? is,
0: it is a mystery too. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like a fantasy, fantasy mystery. mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that suitcase also includes Quentin's invitation for Amari to join the world By joining the Bureau of Supernatural Affairs. And Mari is intrigued, but she joins the Bureau mostly because she knows that that's where she's going to find the answers to what happened to her brother. And where is he? so many exciting things happen in this fantasy world after Amari joins the, gets to the Bureau. Um, she's given a supernatural ability. She's given a supernatural roommate. She has to compete with other kids who know more about the supernatural world, who have more money than she does. And um, she has to compete for a spot on the Bureau's investigation team, which is her chance to find her brother. And It's a great book. I loved so many things about it. I love that it was a world that we can relate to. And then there's just supernatural elements. I loved the super, I love supernatural books. I love fantasy. (laughs) Anything
1: can happen. Yeah,
0: anything can happen. (laughs) But um, I like it when um, it's right in our world. So the world building is is complete and fun and complex, but it doesn't feel like I don't know what's happening at all because this world is so different from my world. It's our world and the people who work at the Bureau are just people. And that also makes it feel exciting. Like, oh, these are just people. This could happen. (laughs) Maybe it's right around the corner. There's kind of a a genre in chapter books, well, in all books called
1: magical realism. Yes, And that's kind of like, you're kind of in between two worlds. Like it could be happening in the real world, but maybe not.
0: I think that's probably my favorite kind of book as magical realism. I love fantasy, but if that it could happen to me element of it, um, that's what makes a book like that. So wonderful. And That's this one, one was like that. And the audio book was really good too. The reader was excellent. Um, but in the book dealt with a lot of real world issues too, like feeling alone and making friends and feeling sad. You know, those are all real things in this book that made it feel just so good. And you just have to know what happens. Cause like, like I said, there's that mystery element to what happened to her brother. That's so. amazing. It That's was a really book. good, and again, you can get that in any of our branches or online if you want to listen to the audiobook. Yeah. That's a great recommendation, Jill.
1: It makes me want to read it again because I read it a while ago.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, there's a second one. There is a huh? second one. You're yeah. right. So, you know, you can just move forward. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one thing that always tells me this was a really good book is when after the book is over, I find myself thinking about the characters and thinking, mm-hmm. I wonder what they would do next. Or you really want to tell somebody about it. That's
1: how I know it was a good book. Like, I want to share this with someone who would
0: enjoy this book. Yes, exactly. That's great. So what did we learn today? It's time for what we learned today. Already? My word. I know. I did write
1: something down. Okay. I wrote... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, I wrote llama milk and buffalo (laughs) cheese. Like... I guess I never thought about it. I've heard of sheep's milk and goat milk and cow's milk, but I never really thought of llama milk. And that's a thing you can make cheese out of. Absolutely.
0: Reindeer milk.
1: I learned that from you, Jill.
0: Oh, thanks. (laughs) What did you learn from me? Okay, well, I learned about flamingos a lot of things, but I think my favorite things I learned was about their legs. Their legs are so weird and their joints Like the one that you see most prominently being the ankle—that's very strange—and then how their their legs have that protection from very salty water. Yeah, that is really interesting. It It probably protects them too from predators who can't enter the water. Can't be in that kind of water. Yeah, yeah.
1: I thought that was fascinating.
0: It's very fascinating. All right. Good stuff today. I learned so much.
1: (laughs) I always do. (laughs) Well, I guess that's it for today. Thanks for all of your amazing questions and helping us to learn more about our world, too. For more information or to send us your own question, head to kdl.org forward slash stump. Tune into the next episode where we answer even more of your questions. Huge and special thanks to the KDL Programming Department, the KDL Marketing Department, and J.D. Delinsky for our intro and outro music. Thank you.